I serve because we had so many people taking care of our kiddos and everyone was all hands on deck helping us and now we're able to give back. important that these kids get a good foundation and I love being able to teach the Bible and serve with our community group as well. Uh, I love to see the kids come in excited about worship and reciting books of the Bible and praying with the worship leader. I have always really enjoyed serving with little ones and it's really fun to get to have them when they're one and two because their little personalities are just kind of starting out and so I get to see kind of the beginning foundations of their faith also. I had a friend that was like hey you should come serve with me and I was like okay and then I got there and she was like, oh, you're going to be serving with screaming little one-year-olds. And I was like, awesome. But it ended up being an incredible opportunity, so I've loved it. When the kids' parents come back after going to church, you can just see the difference in them. Uh, having that one hour, one and a half hours away to just be under the teaching of the Holy Spirit from the services. And, you know, it God revealed to me that that is the biggest reason that I would want to serve is because they are the parents who are going to be raising these children and they need that spiritual feeding. I was asked to serve when they needed help and they needed leaders and so I said why not. I felt it was the least I could do. My daughter grew up at Fellowship and I got to watch her grow in Christ and I felt that it's the least I could do to have these other children, people's children, um, be able to do the same as what my daughter did and uh, so I felt it was important to do that. I made a decision after my daughter was grown to serve and it's it's been very rewarding and it's very important to me because I don't want any kid to be turned away for having, not having enough leaders or enough people to serve. So that's what's important to me. Well, good evening, friends and family of Fellowship Mosaic. I'm Kyle, and I'm the worship team leader here, and I get to uh, stand alongside these women today uh, leading with us in worship. Hey, would y'all stand as I'm gonna um, just start our time just focusing our attention on the Lord. And Laura did a great job with this last week, and I just wanna continue this as a part of our rhythm of what might you be bringing in to the service that you need to release to the Lord tonight? What are those things that are heavy on your shoulders that you would love for him to take? And would you just take a moment and release that to him? Just release whatever is on your soul that's heavy to the Lord. Let's refocus now on the God who breaks the power of sin, who breaks the power of darkness. the power of sin and darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings you believe that tonight who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless in awe and wonder the King of glory, the King 
above all kings. It's amazing we sing. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That's right. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your I sing for all that you've done for me. He orders the world. Who brings our chaos back into order? Who makes the orphans, the son and daughter, the king of glory, the king above all With truth and justice Shines like the sun In all of his brilliance The king of glory The king above all kings We sing It's amazing His amazing grace This is unfailing love That you would take my place that you would bear my cross you lay down your life that i would be set free oh jesus i sing for all that you've done for me
y'all may have a seat. Well, good evening, Mosaic. It's good to be with y'all. My name's Matt. I work here with uh, the kids team, the family team. Uh, a couple of things to put in front of you. Uh, they're all going to be opportunities for us to kind of lift our gaze toward the Lord and, and have our affections stirred for him and, and for our fellow man. Uh, so a couple of things coming up. You'll find as much info as you need to know on the website, fellowshipmosaic.org news. But I'm just going to put a few things in front of you. The first is that Easter is coming up. And Easter around here, there's lots of extra little things going on. Our, our Saturday night services will be our normal service times, but Sunday morning they'll have some special services, even a, a, a service outdoors on the field. Uh, we'll have some, some Holy Week devotionals that you can subscribe to. Anything you need to know about Easter is going to be on this special Easter page, fellowshipnwa.org slash Easter. So that's the first thing you need to know about. Second is this, that uh, there's a Passover Seder dinner that Mosaic Community is hosting at the end of, of April or sorry, beginning of April. And what you need to know for that is it's going to be a, a kind of a combo of the Last Supper and the Passover meal and uh, just a time to kind of retell the story of what's going on with Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So it's a pretty cool opportunity. Uh, you can find more info about it on the website. Uh, another is that we have a class called Our Faith that starts April 1st, same weekend as the Seder. And this is going to answer the eight key questions about our faith. So if you're just kind of going, what does fellowship even believe or what do I believe? I want to kind of set some anchors in some things. Our faith is a great way to do that. And I know sometimes QR codes are frustrating, and, and I'll just give you the secret that the QR code just sends you to fellowshipmosaic.org slash news. So if you are ever confused or you don't know what to do, it's always that single page. It's the only place you need to know how to go, where to go for info. And then the last thing to float in front of you is that Mark Yarbrough or Dr. Mark Yarbrough, the, the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, is going to be coming up to the fellowship campus and hosting a two-day conference where he's going to teach through his class called The Story of Scripture. And it is, uh, we have a panorama class here that's uh, uh, 12 sessions. His is a going to just be a fire hose, kind of a similar experience of uh, uh, Friday night and most of the day Saturday. They'll feed you lunch, all that kind of stuff. Signing up, you'll do it through the website. Um, so the last thing, the, the pivot as we kind of move into service together, is uh, we're going to be doing our offering liturgy. And I just, I, I am always prompted before I lead this liturgy it, just to reflect on things I'm grateful for, places where I've seen God's generosity. And so uh, a couple that I just want to share because it's it's stirring in my heart. One is that uh, I, I'm grateful for both y'all's generosity to the students and also students being generous with their week. There's a whole bunch of them that left today. Two of the mission trips left already. Three more are leaving this week. I'm just grateful for God laying out in front of our students and our students jumping at the opportunities to go and, and tell the story of what's going on in the heavens and on this earth in, in the distant places that they're headed. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for God's generosity to us uh, with the stories coming back. I can't wait to hear them. Uh, and then another one is uh, the getting to lead the kids team. I have a person on my team, Lori Hashin. If you know her, you absolutely love her. She's been working here at Fellowship for 20 years, and uh, she is retiring at the end of the month. And I'm, I don't think I'm going to be here next weekend. And so I just didn't want to miss the opportunity to say, if you see her, tell her thanks for leading so well for so long. Um, she, I just, it's, faithfulness is a big deal, and so I'm, I'm really humbled by that. So 
Tell her you love her if you know her. If not, you, you missed out. But she's not leaving or she didn't die or anything. She's still going to be here. So make sure you get to know her. She'll be worshiping probably a lot more often first hour. So, um, But as it is, let's, uh, let's say this offering liturgy together. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiplied the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your Son and your Spirit. Amen.
Would you remain standing as we read the word of God tonight? I'm Emily Needham. I've been coming to Mosaic for six years. I am the coordinator in the infant and toddler hallway, and I also lead a ladies group on Tuesday nights. So prepare yourselves as we read from Daniel 9. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. In the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Hey, before we jump into the passage tonight, just want to have a little chat. Um, often we get questions from people in the congregation about different things, and usually when one person asks a question, I think one person has a question. When multiple people ask the same question, I start to think, hey, we need to have a conversation here. And a question that uh, I've received, and many, many people in leadership have received multiple times over the last several months, is are we concerned about low attendance at Fellowship Mosaic on Saturday night? And so I thought, hmm, it sounds like if multiple people are asking, it sounds like there's a conversation to have. So, 
uh, I'll try to give you as honest an answer as I'm capable of giving. And I'll tell you about a, a moment I have. We'll start with a little, since we're talking about public confession tonight, we'll have a public confession moment. Um, probably, I guess it was three weeks ago, um, I was sitting with my community group right over here worshiping. And while I was singing, I turned and looked out across the congregation, and the room just looked more full than it had been in a while. And as I, as I looked around the room and felt the, the, the fullness of the room, there weren't, I didn't have any explicit words in my mind, but there was this little swell of satisfaction that came over me. This little sense of patting myself on the back and thinking, I think I'm doing something right. And, uh, and you know, I, I was no longer singing the song or paying attention to the words I was singing anymore because I was thinking these wonderful thoughts, and um, sat back down, and Scott Jones got up to teach on Daniel chapter 4 and 5. And what happens in that moment is Nebuchadnezzar goes out and looks at his kingdom and thinks, look at what I have built. And the Lord struck him with madness. And I, I'm, I'm not kidding, like I just crumbled inside. And I spent the re- like almost the rest of Scott's sermon just like, confessing, repenting, and then pleading with the Lord, can we just call it done here? Like, can this moment be the end of it? I don't want the public humiliation thing. I don't want to go insane. Can, we, can I just say I'm sorry and move on? Um, so to answer the question, am I concerned with low attendance numbers on Saturday night? Sometimes when I'm unhealthy, when I'm looking at the wrong things, when I'm looking to validate myself, yeah, sure, I get concerned. And that concern is almost always rooted in something unhealthy and not God-honoring in me. So, what should a church be concerned with? Where should our eyes be? Hey, first of all, let me just do a little reality check. Um, Fellowship Mosaic has actually been steadily growing over the last two years. Um, And so we're not shrinking. Um, We talked about this before. We won't go back and do the whole history of it. Went through a lot of changes over the course of 2020. Um, But it is not, in fact, the case that we're shrinking or having poor attendance or anything like that. So that, A, that's that's not actually the case. Um, But I want to return to a conversation we had a year ago about where our eyes should be as a congregation. Um, We said that Over the next year, we wanted to reorient. 2020 and 2021 was a massively disorienting time period for our congregation and really for the country as a whole, but particularly for our congregation. We wanted to reorient in three directions. We wanted to reorient to God, to to fix our eyes on him and, and focus in on knowing the one true living God. And then we wanted to reorient to each other look around the room and say, who's here? Who are our people? Do we know each other well? Do we love each other well? And then we wanted to reorient toward our mission, toward our calling as a church to make disciples. And so those, that reorienting language, um, it's really just another way to say the three priorities that God has given his church, which are to love God, to love others, and to make disciples. So when I'm unhealthy, I'm trying to measure my personal success and the success of this church based on how many seats are filled on a Saturday night. And oftentimes, I think in, a, in maybe, I don't know if this is just a, a Western culture thing, but at least in Western church, we've taken to thinking of the church very much like you would a business. 
and we're trying to analyze if the business has a healthy rate of growth and remains viable. Um, Nowhere in Scripture is the church spoken of that way. In Scripture, the church is a family. The church is a group of people committed to living life together. I've never been a part of a family that sits down over family dinner and says, let's look at the bottom line and see if this thing is still viable. That would be a really horrible conversation, would it not? That'd be a horrible way to think of church and it'd be a horrible way to think of family. So the question we ought to be asking is not how do we feel about the numbers on Saturday night, but rather are we a healthy church that is being faithful to the Lord? Now, can numbers be indicative of that? Sure, of course they can. We used the example last time we had this conversation of somebody going to the doctor and they always make me step step on that scale and it is just a terrible 30 seconds every time I go into the doctor. And in in any person's phase of life that they're in, weight gain or weight loss can be indicative of health or unhealth, right? There are times in your life when weight loss is a bad thing and it's a sign that something not good is happening. And there are times in your life where weight gain is a bad thing and it's a sign of something not good happening. How do you know the difference? You need a story. You need to know what's going on in that person's life. What are all the other factors that determine whether or not that change in a number indicates health or unhealth. So, sure, we have an eye on the numbers attending on Saturday night. But that number is a very small factor in assessing if we are a healthy church. The question is, are the people who call Fellowship Mosaic home growing to love God more? Are they growing to know the one true God and love him more? Are the people who call Fellowship Mosaic home learning to love each other better? And are the people who call Fellowship Mosaic home helping other people grow to know Jesus and become disciples? So am I concerned about numbers on Saturday night? Yeah, in my unhealthy moments, sure. But I want to know the story behind the numbers. I want to know When somebody new walks into this room on a Saturday night, are they welcomed? Does someone reach out and say hi and invite them to connect? I want to know the story of how we're living Sunday to Friday out in our community. Are we telling the people we know about the Jesus who's changed our lives? When I see a movie or a television show that I really enjoy, I feel compelled to share that with people. I want them to experience that awesome movie I just experienced. When I eat at a new restaurant that is phenomenal, I want other people to have that experience too. Are we experiencing the love of Jesus in such a way that we feel compelled to tell our neighbors and our coworkers and the other parents associated with our kids' activities what's going on with Jesus and connecting them? So if the numbers at Mosaic reflect an undercurrent of a story that we are a cold and unfriendly congregation that hunkers down and doesn't want anybody to interrupt what we have going in our small groups or what we have going on Saturday night. If we are a congregation that doesn't see anything about Jesus worth sharing with our unbelieving friends, then that would be a great sign of unhealth and I would be deeply concerned.
those aren't the stories I'm hearing. Uh, The stories that I'm hearing over and over again are of community groups and members of this church loving each other in really practical, tangible ways. And I want to challenge us to continue to grow in that. um, At this fall launch, uh, Colin led us through Acts chapter 2 a picture of the early church. And that description of the church described the things that the followers of Jesus were devoted to. They were devoted to the scriptures, to the teaching of the apostles. They were devoted to prayer together. And they were devoted to to loving each other well, both within their community and the people around them. And then at the very end of that paragraph, this is what it says, and the Lord added to their number. The picture there is we as a church are to have our eyes on devotion to loving God, loving others, and making disciples, and trust the Lord with the numbers. I love the people in this room. And our team loves Fellowship Mosaic and is thrilled to be here. And my family loves calling this place home and has no desire to go anywhere else. Occasionally, Disney World is tempting. But besides that, we're really, really happy right here and excited to stay here. So I would encourage us to continue to fix our eyes on the things that Jesus has called us to. And so even practically, when you walk in on Saturday night, and this is what I'm gonna challenge myself to do, when I feel the temptation to measure the number of people in the room, I wanna get my eyes off the numbers of people and on the faces of the people in the room. Almost every week, I have a little battle inside myself, and it goes like this. I think I recognize that person. I don't remember their name. So I can either go say hi and expose that I've forgotten their name or awkwardly avoid eye contact. And I have a little war inside over what I'm gonna do. So I would challenge us to become, to continue to grow, to be a, converse, a congregation that is warm, welcome, and loving, him, loving, loving to the people around us. Devoted to loving God, loving each other, and making disciples. And if our eyes are fixed on that, we can trust the Lord with everything else. With that in mind, let's pray and dive into Daniel chapter nine. Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much um, for this chance to be together, for this chance to to study your scriptures and to be transformed by the word that you've given us, and I pray that that's what will take place tonight. Lord, that as we open up the scriptures, uh, that you will change us, that your spirit will be at work, uh, and that we will be more like you as a result. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, some people have asked, reasonably so, this is another question we get asked a lot, um, why are we doing the chapters out of order? It's a little confusing. Um, Here's here's the uh, the honest reason for it. it, had to do with the calendar of the spring. And Daniel chapter nine is this really beautiful, pivotal part of Daniel that sets up in the most explicit way the coming of Jesus. And we really just thought it would be special to close Daniel and go into Easter week from Daniel chapter nine. And so that's really the reason to take Daniel chapter nine and handle it at the end is because of the way that it really is a culminating moment in Daniel there in the middle that sets us up for the Passion Week in a really special way. So we're gonna do the first half of nine this week and we'll do the second half of nine next week. And so as we come to Daniel chapter nine, uh, we read in verse one, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the uh, the Babylonian kingdom. So this is around the same time as the story in Daniel chapter six, uh, where Daniel's thrown to the lion's den. 
in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, so this is Daniel uh, speaking first person here, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I love this moment in the scripture so much because this is one of the few times that we get to peek inside of one of the like heroes in the scripture's personal devotion life. Daniel says he was reading Jeremiah and as he read, he came across something that struck him so much he started to pray. And that's what, that's, what Dan, that's what prompts all of Daniel 9 is essentially Daniel's having a quiet time. And he says that he's reading in Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet back in Jerusalem who wrote, at the, we've been talking about this thing called the exile, the 70 years that Israel was taken out of their home into captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah was writing at the very beginning of the exile Daniel's now nearing the end of the exile, so about, there's about a 50-year gap um, between a lot of what's going on. And we're not exactly sure if Daniel has the entire book of Jeremiah that he's reading. It's very possible that the whole book of Jeremiah would have made it to Daniel. But another possibility is in, Dan, in Jeremiah chapter 29, we have a letter that Jeremiah sent to Babylon to be read to the Jews who are in exile. And so it's very possible that what Daniel has is that letter that Jeremiah sent. But here's the thing that I think is really important. Within less than 100 years, a few decades of Jeremiah writing, Daniel already recognizes that Jeremiah's written words are scripture. That's pretty incredible to me, that very quickly the words that Jeremiah the prophet wrote were being recognized by another prophet as scripture. And Daniel... This man who has incredible visions from the Lord is still dedicating his time to sitting down and reading the scriptures and being transformed by it. So what did Daniel read? Likely he read Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10. This is probably the section that caught his attention and caused him to go down in prayer. It says, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Now, um, Daniel would have been captured. The city of Jerusalem was captured in 605 BC. Uh, The first year of the reign of Darius when the Persians came in was around 539 BC. So we're looking at about 66 years from the beginning of the exile to this moment that Daniel's having his quiet time. So it's been about 66 years, and Daniel is reading the letter that Jeremiah wrote, and he reads that the exile is only supposed to last 70 years. So he's going, wait a minute. We're coming to the end. We're coming to the end of this exile, and the the Jews are about to get to go home. And it's easy for us to go like, wait, how did they miss that? We gotta remember this is pre-printing press. So if Jeremiah sends this letter, it could have been sitting in some archive for decades without being read. We don't know exactly how it happened, so it's probably not the case that all of the exiles have a copy of this letter they're all studying all the time. So Daniel could have been one of the first people to find this letter and read it in decades. And he reads this letter and realizes, oh my goodness, the time is almost up. But Daniel knows something of importance. 
He knows the pattern of what God promised would happen to his people in exile. There's plenty of places we could go to look at this, but one example is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 40, describes what will happen if the people are in exile, if if this punishment comes on them. It says, but if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. Daniel knows the situation. He knows that the 70 years is coming to an end, but he looks at his people and he doesn't see people repenting. He, doesn't, he has not seen Israel turn to the Lord and say, Lord, we sinned. We were wrong. And, and there's this interesting tension here between the promise of what God's gonna do and the responsibility of his people to respond. And Daniel understands that the two go together. And he makes a very interesting choice. Counter to what a lot of leaders are inclined to do in our culture today, he recognizes his people are missing it. And instead of going on a speaking campaign, condemning all the Jews for not having repented, he gets on his knees and he begins to repent himself. He starts by looking at his own heart, acknowledging his own need of the Lord, and he begins to confess his sin and the sin of his people. And what we get is a model prayer of confession and repentance from Daniel. There's a couple of comments we need to to make before we dive into looking at this confession. The first is that in Leviticus, it talks about God's covenant. This word covenant, it's kind of like a contract, but it's a contract that is legally binding, but also forms a loving relationship. And it says that God had a covenant with Israel. The closest things we have to a covenant like that today would be both marriage and adoption. Those are two legally binding processes that also involve relationship, right? Uh, We we understand when we enter into a marriage or an adoption, we're not just making some business agreement. We're committing to a relationship of love. That also has legal implications. That's the idea of a covenant. It's an agreement between God and his people that both has laws and stipulations and is a commitment to love each other. Now, when Daniel goes to confess, there is this promise that if the people repent and confess, God will bless those people. That promise is for people in covenant with God. These passages are misapplied when you apply them to say, if a nation state will pray, God will bless that nation. Because none of the nations on earth are in covenant relationship with God. So this is not a template for how a nation can experience God's blessing. The people who are in covenant with God today are his church. This is a prescription for how the church is to respond and walk with God. The second thing to notice is that Daniel is confessing for sins that he likely has never himself personally committed He's going to confess the wickedness of the people of Israel and take a kind of personal ownership in it. For for Western people who are radically individualistic, that is deeply offensive. 
We tend to think I'm not responsible for anyone but me. And yet, Daniel had this profound sense that he was connected to the people of God in a way that he carried a burden for the sins of the people. That doesn't make him guilty of their sins, but it does mean he lives with the consequences of it. And we would see the same thing in a family relationship, right? Like if my daughter, if I, if I got called to the school one day because my daughter had hurt another child in a horrific way, I wouldn't look at the principal and say, I don't know why you're calling me. She did it, not me. Right? That would be an absurd response from a father. Like, as a father, you would, you would recognize this is a family matter. Even if my child is the one who did it, not me, we would recognize that this is something we have to work on together. And it would work the other way around too, right? If I did something horrific that changed the trajectory of my life and landed me in prison, would my daughter be guilty of my sin? No. Would my wife be guilty of my sin? No. Would my wife and daughter be living with consequences from my sin that they now have to deal with? Absolutely. Theologian Al Mohler says, when it comes to our standing with God, everyone is only responsible for their own behavior. When it comes with dealing with consequences on earth, we all experience the result of everyone else's decisions. The effects of what some Christians do play out across the globe. And we see Daniel understanding that as a part of Israel, he experiences the consequences of the sins of Israel, which means he also can confess on their behalf and expect God to intervene. So that's what drives the confession as Daniel goes to his knees and he begins to pray. And he says this, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. You see, Daniel's applying to, to that, or appealing to that promise that he knows God will respond. To, uh, with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in our name, to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. You notice how straightforward his confession is? No excuses. He doesn't call them a mistake. You know, that, that's really good corporate apology, right? Every time a corporation makes an apology, the phrase, mistakes were made, is gonna be in there. Um, apparently, no humans actually did anything. There were just these random mistakes floating around. Um, Daniel says, no, we have sinned. We have done wrong. An excellent model for confession every time. Call it like it is. Be honest and direct. We did wrong. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the reasons I'm often nervous about confession is I'm terrified of that moment when the other person realizes what I've done and the shock and disappointment on their face. Here's a comfort when confessing to God. He already knows. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher and, and Christian theologian, made this observation. It's not to God, it's not God, but you, the maker of the confession, that gets to know something by your act of confession. God is already very well aware of what you've done. And, the, and he's chosen not to strike you down. And he's promised to forgive when you confess. So by refusing to confess, 
it's, it's like playing hide and go seek with a two-year-old. You know this process where they go lay on the floor right in front of you and close their eyes and think you can't see them? This is what happens when we refuse to confess to God. It's insanity to pretend like we haven't done it before an all-knowing God. So literally, the only person who is being enlightened or coming into the truth when we confess is us. God's always been in the truth and in the light. And so long as we choose to hide from the light, we're choosing to put distance between ourselves and him. Confession brings us back to sanity and back to reality. The other thing to notice about Daniel's confession here is he describes their sin as not having listened to the prophets, not having listened to the voice of God. Um, Oftentimes when we describe sin, we use phrases, people will describe it as, as anything that disrupts peace on earth or something that stops human fulfillment. And, and those descriptions are true. Sure, sin d- d- keeps humans from living fulfilled lives. Sin disrupts peace on earth. But there's a problem when we start to describe sin by their effects. It is that we start thinking we get to decide what is sin based on if we think it has a negative effect. So many times I've heard people actually contradict what God's word says about a behavior and said, I don't see how that's wrong because I don't see how it's hurting anyone. The idea there is if, if we can't see how it's causing disruption, then it must not be wrong. Daniel recognizes that sin is fundamentally rebellion against God. That it is God who sets the standard and says, this is what is right, this is what will go well with you. This is what, will obeying God lead to humans being fulfilled in peace? Absolutely. But sin is fundamentally rebellion against him. And Daniel, in his sanity and sobriety, is acknowledging that. So he prays in verse seven, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings and our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. Notice what Daniel's doing. He's connecting their experience of exile to their sin, which means Daniel is recognizing that they are not a victim of circumstances, that they're receiving the consequences of their action. He's owning it in a very real way. What happened to us is fair and right because of our sin. He's being really straightforward and honest about that. We deserve this. We deserve the hard things that came as a result of our sin. And yet, verse nine, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled. The temptation that I always face when looking at my sin is either to minimize the seriousness of my sin to avoid the consequences or to minimize God's grace and wallow in self-pity and shame. And Daniel shows us this courageous, gutsy confession where you both acknowledge how desperate the sin is and how amazing God's mercy is. Tim Keller likes to say, our our sin is worse than we could have dared to imagine. And And God's grace is greater than we could have dared hope. And both are true at the same time. Jumping, let's, let's jump down 
to verse 15. Now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned and we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to those around us. So his final plea is, God, forgive us and relent. Restore us to where we were. If we were to try to summarize, what are the observations about about a healthy confession that we see from Daniel? Um, Five points stood out to me. First, there's a direct admission of sin. You're not beating around the bush. You're saying, this is what we've done, and we're guilty or I'm guilty. The second, second is that there's a clear understanding of sin. You understand exactly what happened and why it was wrong. You can, in this case, you can say, hey, I, I broke God's word. I went against it. You're clearly saying I'm guilty and you're acknowledging what it is I'm guilty of. Third, there's a sober appreciation of God's justice. You understand, yeah. Sin has consequences and I'm not trying to run from those consequences. I accept it and I deserve difficult consequences. And yet, there is also a humble request for mercy and forgiveness. Humble in the sense that no one can make demands that I deserve forgiveness. The the phrase deserve forgiveness is an oxymoron. Forgiveness by definition is undeserved. The request for forgiveness is always rooted in the humility of saying I don't deserve this, but I'm asking anyway. And fifth, we don't, we don't see this one come through in this confession of Daniel. Um, I think primarily because he is not actually guilty of these sins. He's confessing. But on the other confessions we see in Scripture, there is a sincere turn from sin. That if your behavior was going one way, there's a sincere, I'm moving away from that behavior. A confession that says, yeah, I know it's wrong, and I accept the consequences, and I ask forgiveness, and by the way, I'm going to keep doing it. I just about had a really great tumble there. Um, is not a sincere confession. And these are the components of a healthy confession. So we turn now to the final two verses. Daniel prays, now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes to see the desolation of the city that bears your name. Notice this verse. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake. My God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Can we add a sixth point of confession that is necessary? You must have a deep faith in God's love for you. Without the confidence that God loves you and is merciful, confession is actually kind of dumb, right? If the only result of confession is guaranteed wrath of God, maybe trying to hide is the best plan. Confession requires trust in God's grace. It requires knowing that God is merciful and that he forgives. One of the things that I think Daniel teaches us is in this massive book where we have seen cataclysmic, apocalyptic visions of the end and the empires of the world and the spiritual forces of darkness, Daniel recognizes 
that all of those are under God's sovereign hand. God controls the nations. God controls all the spiritual forces. None of those can touch God's people without God's permission. You see, the greatest threat to the people of God is not some force coming against us, but unrepentant sin within us. We don't have to, we, spend, we are tempted to spend so much time worrying about the forces outside the church that are trying to oppose us. Jesus looked at Peter after Peter confessed that he was the Messiah and he said, the gates of hell can't stand against you. Now, if the gates of hell can't stand against the church, why in the world would we be scared about some political agenda or media agenda? It can't touch us. But what Daniel is deeply grieved over is the thought that the people of God would go without repenting of their sin. That is what will stop the people of God dead in their tracks. So I wanna invite us to do something tonight. This is kind of part one Um, This summer, during our rhythm series, we're gonna take a look at personal confession for more individual sins. Tonight, I wanna invite us as the church to confess the broader sins of the church, to confess where we as the people of God have fallen short. And I can already tell you that there's probably gonna be something in you that's gonna rise up and get defensive at some of these, go, I haven't. Of course not everyone in here has done all these things. Of course not. And there might be something in you that'll rise up and say, yes, we did that, but we also, and and point to something good that we've done. Of course, I'm not saying the church hasn't done wonderful things. But we must be willing to confess and repent where we as the people of God have fallen short. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna have a time of confession. A confession will come up on the screen. I will read it aloud and say, Lord, where we have sinned, we ask your forgiveness. And then I'm gonna ask the people of God to respond by saying, Lord, have mercy. And then I'm gonna give you a few seconds just to consider each of these confessions and talk to the Lord about it in silence. Let's pray together. I'll read the confession first. Lord, where we have neglected our devotion to you, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. Lord, where we have accepted materialism and greed as a normal way of life, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. Lord, where we have failed to love our neighbors because they look or speak differently than us, We ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. Lord, where we have turned a cold shoulder to the poor while tending to our own comforts, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. And Lord, where we have worshiped human leaders instead of our risen Savior, 
we ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. Lord, where we have abused women and children or enabled such abuse through our silence, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. Lord, where we have embraced lust and sexual sin, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. Lord, where we have treated the sin struggles of others as more sinful than our own, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. Lord, where we have used your church as a political instrument, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. Lord, where we have exchanged your word as our guide for some other guide, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. And Lord, where we have withheld the gospel from the lost, whether out of fear or neglect, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, have mercy. And we can say that prayer, Lord, have mercy with great confidence because we are promised that he is a merciful God who loves us and desires to restore. So would you pray out loud with me these words from Daniel's prayer? Give ear our God and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Amen.
Together. The words won't be on the screen. If we could just change the I to we, as a body of Christ, sing, Lord, we need you. Let's just sing that together. moment, let's spend some time with the Lord. Would you receive the love of Christ in this moment? What does he have for you that you need to take hold of? As we released our, our things that we were bringing in earlier, what is the Lord asking you to receive now from him?
tarry when Jesus is pleading. He's pleading for you and for me. Why should we linger and heed not his mercies? Mercies for you and for me. Sing, come on. Come on. Come on. You are weary. Come on. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is called. Calling a sinner, come home. Time is now fleeting. Moments are passing. They're passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering. Deathbeds are coming. They're coming for you and for me. So come home, come home, you are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling a sinner, come home, oh, for the wonderful love he has promised. Promise for you and for me. Though we have sinned, He has mercy and pardon. Pardon for you and for me. So come home, come home. You are Let's read this assurance of pardon together. This comes from Micah chapter 7, 18 through 20. Do you read this with me? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors in days long ago. What a great hope that is as we prepare our hearts to leave this place. 
If you would like prayer, we'll have our prayer team down front and we'll have prayer cards available in the back for you to write. Uh, if you'd love to get connected to our staff, we'd love to meet you. We'll have a team in the lobby out in the, the info booth. Uh, let's go and love and peace to serve the Lord. And the people said, see you next week, church.